3: This is Dmitry Samarov from Chicago, Illinois. And I love listening to Vish Khanna's Creative Control because whether he's talking to a favorite musician or actor of mine or someone I've never heard of, it's as if he's introducing me to a new friend. And the way things are going, couldn't you
4: use a new friend? Listen now.
3: To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash Control today. Alan Licht is a musician, performer, interviewer, and journalist based in New York City. Originally from New Jersey, Licht is a renowned guitarist who's performed in underground rock bands like Run On and Love Child and more experimental outfits like Blue Humans and Text of Light. He has also released eight solo guitar albums and collaborated with all manner of artists in the realms of experimental and improvised music. Licht is also a respected writer and interviewer whose work has appeared in Bomb Magazine, Art Forum, Parquette, The Wire, The Believer, and Sight and Sound, among others, and he is the co-author and editor of the book Will Oldham on Bonnie Prince Billy. Licht's latest book is a monumental one called Common Tones, selected interviews with artists and musicians, 1995-2020, to 2020, which includes compelling conversations with the likes of Anony, Glenn Bronca, Reese Chatham, Tony Conrad, The Dream Syndicate's Carl Procoda, Milford Graves, Lou Reed, The C and Cake, Suicide, Michael Snow, Greg Tate, Tom Verlaine, and Yola Tango's Georgia Hubley and Ira Kaplan, among many, many others. Common Tones is out now via blank forms, and it prompted Alan and I... To have a chat about the time he played the Hillside Festival in Guelph, Ontario with Lee Ronaldo, his trajectory as a lover of art and music and why he began playing guitar, inspiring music journalism and why he keeps an open mind, his long and close relationships with Sonic Youth and Will Oldham, why long-form interviews are all the rage these days, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One network with the support of listeners like you, who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control with additional support from Blackbird Music, a well-stocked record store with locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, and friendly staff who will happily help you place your special orders for hard-to-find titles and get whatever you need. You can learn more about them at blackbird.ca. Plus, in kind support from Pizza Trocadero, the bookshelf and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is the 647th episode of Creative Control featuring the lovely and talented Alan Licht with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Alan. How you doing?
1: I'm good. How are you doing?
3: I'm well. Thanks for asking. Sometimes your American colleagues don't ask. They they just say, <laughs> oh, I'm fine. That's all that matters. And I'm like, what's going <laughs> yeah, on? Why well, yeah. you? No, I, I've been making these jokes uh, lately because it keeps coming up. But I appreciate your... Your courtesy and your manners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's nice to uh, see you again. It's been uh, some years since we've been uh, in the same yeah. same vicinity. You were in Guelph for right. the Hillside Festival, as I recall.
1: It was Guelph. I was trying to remember if it was Guelph, and that's correct.
3: Yeah, you were there with uh, Lee Ronaldo and the Dust, as I recall. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah.
3: Is that your only time in Guelph?
1: I think so. I don't think I ever played that other... It was more of a jazz festival that's there, right? Yeah, Guelph. I don't, I, think, I don't think I ever played that. You should
3: someday... You should definitely play yeah. the Guelph Jazz Festival. Lee Lee actually played it uh, in the late 90s or early 2000s mm. uh, in, in a capacity that wasn't, uh, you know, pop or rock oriented, if you will. Right. Uh, maybe with Leah singer. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, I don't recall off the top of my head. But uh, no, Guelph's cool. It's a nice place. Anyway, yeah, that was fun. Mm. That was fun. It was raining, as I recall. You guys were on the main stage and it was really raining.
1: Ooh. Was it? I don't <laughs> totally remember what I remember more, uh, more than our performance. I remember this other band playing Alice Cooper's love it to death album all the way through. <laughs> That's right. That was, and, uh, I think Tim Luntel, the bass player in the dust was not familiar with that record. So that was sort of his exposure to it. And, and I know that record, but I hadn't listened to it in quite a long time. So, uh, that was also a good way to sort of reacquaint myself with that record.
3: Well, that, uh, so what you saw actually was a, what they call a workshop. And so it was, a, uh-huh. it was actually two bands. It was the Sadies and Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet right. collaborating on the, they'd obviously re- re- practiced that. But, uh, as I recall, they worked together on that. And then, uh, Lee Ronaldo and the Dust, uh, were also in a workshop. Uh, I think the close out the night. Uh, did you take part in that? Were you kind of jammed with people from Bell Orchestra and Colin Stetson and?
1: Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I played with Colin. I played with uh Sarah. Is that Sarah the... Newfeld.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And I remember that because uh among other things, uh, Lee convinced everyone to do a version of Revolution Blues by Neil Young. Uh and <laughs> right. that
1: was we used to do that quite a bit as as sometimes as an encore, or sometimes just part of the set. I think
3: we yeah, do that song. Yeah. Have you seen or talked to Lee much lately?
1: I actually just saw him last night because we both went to the premiere and this is a good uh, introduction to what we're going to talk about. Actually yeah. premiere of the Todd Haynes documentary about the velvet underground, oh, nice. which is just called the velvet underground. And it's, uh, it's a really, really well done film and very artfully made and also kind of approaches the velvet underground from kind of an art historical perspective rather than like a rock historical perspective. Like most of the talking heads that are in it are people like Jonas Mikas and Henry Flint and, uh, Amy Talbin Mary Warren of, I mean, it's, it's not a bunch of rock critics sitting around talking about them. It's not people from other bands talking about them. It's, you know, Todd really kind of works to situate them as within kind of the new, this kind of confluence of, of a variety of different kind of New York avant-garde of the early sixties, whether it's like the avant-garde film scene or the avant-garde art scene or avant-garde literature and, you know, kind of et cetera, et cetera. And then how that kind of like bumps against these guys who are all sitting around listening to, you know, rock and roll records, you know, like Reed was a, was like in rock and roll bands from when he was a teenager, but even John Cale, who's more of a classically trained musician and Tony Conrad, who's it's sort of hard to say what his training was, but what they were both kind of sitting around listening to rock and roll records. And they talk about the Everly brothers and they're kind of like noticing the similarities between how the tuning in the Everly Brothers' voices and the tuning that they were using with Lamont Young and what they would call the Dream Syndicate and what Lamont called the Theater of Eternal Music, uh, and just like this idea of just intonation, how it was like something that kind of like naturally happened with the Everly Brothers and something that they were kind of like very consciously tuning their instruments to achieve uh, with with that group. Well, you
3: seem particularly interested in, in interdisciplinary artistic expression or artists i should say uh there's so many subjects in your book if not all i feel like uh, if well, i'm generalizing but i feel like everyone in your book has done or did different things in their artistic expression
1: by and large i think that's probably yeah, i think that's probably accurate to say and in fact i have michael snow the great canadian artist uh kind of right up front in the book is almost sort of like supreme example of this with someone who I kind of initially knew of as being a uh, experimental filmmaker. And then gradually found out he's also an experimental musician. He's also a visual artist, you know? So. Yeah.
3: So, and this brings us to you in a sense, because uh, you are a musician uh, and mm-hmm. at some point you became a writer. I know from mostly and more, I guess, most extensively from this, the interview you uh, have here with uh, members of Yola Tango, Ira Georgia. You're from New mm-hmm. Jersey. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Are you from Hoboken?
1: No, I was from a little bit further out in New Jersey in this town called Milburn.
3: Milburn. That's correct. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Of course, of course it's correct. You should know. I don't know why I'm like <laughs> fact checking you about your origin story. Yeah. Yeah. That comes up in in that very fascinating uh, back and forth about New Jersey. Uh, and I, right. I found that interesting. Let's go back to that to your time in New Jersey, I'm just curious how you got into music in the first place as a listener, because as we go here, as I alluded to already, we're going to cover the fact that you are a very gifted musician, uh, a multidisciplinary musician, in fact. You're also a very well-regarded writer, well-regarded interviewer, I, and I feel like all of this probably stems from an early interest in art and music. How did right. you How did you first get into... Uh, well...
1: <laughs> You know, in kindergarten, I was first exposed to both record players and art. Okay. Like, I walked in one day and they had record players set up, and they were like, These are records. Like, you put this on, you put the needle on it, then you put on the headphones, and you kind of hear what's on the record. And I went home after that and told my mother about it. And she's like, Well, we have records here. And, and she had a small collection of mostly classical music and uh, show tunes. And I, that became like, uh, a pastime. That was another way to keep me occupied was like having me play records instead of watching TV or uh, beating up my little brother. <laughs> <laughs> and then they kind of, like, especially my father kind of realized while well, he's sitting here, listening to records, like we should get like a real stereo system. Cause all my mother had was like one of those portable little record players. And there was one uncle who was kind of a, an audiophile and he kind of recommended some equipment for us. So then we had a kind of a family stereo, but then another day when I walked into kindergarten, they were like, this is Japanese art. <laughs> and they showed like the Hokusai, like the, the print of the, the big tidal wave, you know, which is sort of like a, a well-known Japanese print. Yeah. Uh, and I guess I guess they must have introduced this to some other art, you know, as well. And that really appealed to me. And I became, you know, they had to have me draw, of course, and everything else like that in kindergarten. And that I was automatically kind of drawn to and was like reasonably skilled at So that really became my primary interest was was kind of classical art. I didn't like modern art, especially, but classical art and both like researching it and drawing. So the Alan Licht of that was six or seven years old and like researching, going to the library and getting out books on Rembrandt or whoever, and then was like also like drawing, copying the paintings and then you know, having it kind of like an exhibition outside the school library of my different drawings is not that different from the Alan of today that's, you know, coming up with this book of interviews yeah. with people and also like making records.
3: Yeah. So uh, my understanding is your primary instrument is a, gu- is a guitar. Is that fair? hmm. Yeah. So what's the leap from six or seven year old Alan who likes art to getting into actually obtaining and playing guitar?
1: Like when I was nine or 10, I went from like not being interested in rock music or pop music at all to being interested in it based, weirdly enough, on just seeing Sean Cassidy sing on the Hardy Boys oh, TV nice. show. Right. Uh, and so then I was like, well, I should go out and buy the record that the song is on, which is called That's Rock and Roll. And <laughs> uh, my my father had, you know, he worked. For a a big construction company in New York. It was actually the construction company that built the World Trade Center. And as a result of working for a big corporation, he had these kind of corporate discount cards. So he had a corporate discount card for Sam Goody, which gave us like 20% off, something like that. So I told my parents, I want to go to a record store and buy this record. And they were like, well, we have this discount card. Let's go to the mall and go to Sam Goody. And so I bought. The record and then i was like well i want like, now i gotta get more <laughs> like how it was like what else is there so i turned on the radio and started listening to am radio i didn't even know what fm radio was i don't think my parents were sort of pre-rock and roll generation people they weren't boomers i was born in 68 but my father was over 40 when i was born he was probably pushing 30 when Elvis came out. So he wasn't like a teeny bopper or or something like that. So, and I didn't have older siblings. So, you know, I really had to kind of figure this out and, uh, I would listen to the radio, but then I would also go to the library and I would just like, like, what does the library have about like a history of rock? And this is 1978. So rock hasn't been around all that long. There's kind of a limit to how many books were available about it, but they did have some. There was like a book on the Beatles. There was a great book by Nick Cohn called uh, Rock from the Beginning. Mm. So I started like piecing this stuff together, but it was difficult to, to find out of print records. You know, the time from reading about Frank Zappin and the Mother's Invention to actually hearing Frank Zappan and the Mother's Invention was literally years. And, you know, nowadays, of course, you could go on the internet and hear it in two seconds. But it was a lot different back then because things just didn't get Even Frank Zappa, like the early mother's invention records didn't get reissued until sometime in the mid 80s. And even then he kind of like messed with them and like re-recorded parts and things like that.
3: I want to get into your crate digging in just a moment because you, based on your interest, you seem drawn to the obscure, the subterranean, the more challenging work uh, that's out there. But let's go back a, a few moments actually to that Sam Goody trip. Uh-huh. <laughs> was the Sean Cassidy record was the first mm-hmm. one you bought, and did that yeah. was did that live up to the hype, like from the TV experience of watching him? Were you like, oh yeah, this whole <laughs> thing is amazing? <laughs>
1: I kind of remembered liking it, you know. Like some of the songs were about, uh, you know, heartbreak and girl trouble, and I was like, "This guy's a big star. Why is he he having all these difficulties? (laughs) Yeah, right. Women, you know." I was like, "I mean, you know, I'm nine years old. You know, I have absolutely no idea like how anything like that works." So I think that was one of the things I sort of uh, came away from it with you know i think the record starts off with his version of the do ron ron right you know it was just like a phil but i didn't know that song from anything i I thought it was a good song i didn't realize it was like uh, a phil specter wall of sound type thing right yeah like or any like any i mean there's a lot of things where i heard like a later version of something that's a classic rock or pop song like You know, there was all these Beatles songs I know from the Sgt. Pepper movie soundtrack. (laughs) Like a lot of the songs on Abbey Road I first heard on that soundtrack, which is, it's it's completely backwards. And even some of the ones I think on Revolver were on that soundtrack. So it's like... Weren't the Bee Gees involved? Yeah, I know, I know. Gotta Get You Into My Life from Earth, Wind & Fire doing it. Oh, wow. On that soundtrack, which is like, again, it's like completely backwards.
3: Backwards, right. Okay. Uh, That's interesting. So... Uh, the fact that you even made that realization like wait a minute the version I'm hearing of something isn't the authentic version if you will there's something else I need yeah. to, I need to start digging into this culture to get what I really need and what I really want yeah. Uh, yeah I wonder if that maybe that's a bit trite but it seems to me that as I was saying you are drawn to people who are kind of are margin are generally marginalized artist on some level do you know where that impulse stems from
1: yeah that's i'm I'm realizing i didn't actually answer your question about taking up guitar so i'll get to that maybe after i answer sure this question maybe
3: maybe maybe they're connected those answers
1: yeah i mean frankly you know for the first you know two or three years of listening it was all well-known stuff it was just becoming acquainted with the who and led zeppelin and Neil Young and like anybody who was on the radio, but not that long after, even after buying the Sean Cassidy record, I had one cousin who lived in Brooklyn and he would come out to our house in the suburbs every once in a while for a home cooked meal, usually with a date who we want to impress or at least give like a nice afternoon, you know, in the leafy suburb, as opposed to, <laughs> uh, you know, the hardcore Brooklyn. And, um, you know, he would bring, you know, a present for me and my brother, usually. Um, And I guess my parents must have said, well, he likes rock music now. Maybe get him something like that. And so what he decided to bring was the book 1988 Punk Rock Explosion by Caroline Kuhn, which was a collection of Caroline Kuhn's articles, I think, in Melody Maker about the London punk scene as it happened in 76 and 77. And the book had just come out and there's like this great picture of Johnny Rotten on the cover, just like totally snarling. And I had seen the sex pistols on, um, you know, they used to have on Saturday mornings, like in between Saturday morning cartoons, they would have this thing called in the news, which would be like a one minute long encapsulation of some news story, you know, but, but made, you know, uh, kind of, uh, digestible for yeah, children. Yeah, yeah. Adjusted for children, yeah. you know, and one of it was the sex pistols, touring america that was in between Uh, saturday morning cartoons yeah if you can believe that wow okay so i knew who the sex buses were based on that and i think i maybe i'd seen like a review of nevermind the bollocks in a a rock like circus magazine was i think the rock magazine that i started off reading right then so i knew who they were but this was like a whole book about it and like and the pictures in this book are incredible you know and it was every punk you could think of but you know, they're all, they all look like criminals.
3: Absolutely, yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, they're all just completely I mean, beyond degenerate. I mean, I already thought that Peter Frampton was sort of like a juvenile delinquent, <laughs> but like compared to Peter Frampton, you know, Peter Frampton is like Liberace compared to the people in this book. And I was just, I was actually kind of like frightened by it. So I kind of put it aside. And then a couple of years later, the clash were on the radio with London Calling. And I remembered the clash from this book. And then I pulled the book out. And I started looking at it again. I was a little more ready to sort of confront what was in there. So if, you know, but again, this is still something where these bands are on major labels and so on and so forth. Uh, But it was probably from reading cream magazine where they would start to put, you know, Van Halen or whoever on the cover, but inside would be an article about half Japanese or Mm. about uh, the shags or about, you know, whatever underground sort of thing there was and you know of course I would kind of like read through the whole magazine not just whoever was on the cover Right, and that's where I started finding about, out about these people and then tracking the record down was uh, often another matter it would take some time to do that mm. but gradually I, I got to realize that the more someone says like this is way out there it's like this might not be for you if you're you just like you know regular you know AOR rock that's on the radio I kind of started realizing like this is actually the stuff that I like better than what you know you would hear on the radio or on a MTV.
3: Is there anything within you or is rather, is there anything within that that speaks to something within you about maybe anti-authority or just not being, you know, not eating what you're being fed, so to speak. I have, I have been wrestling with this as well as I ponder how I got into what I do. And why I started to think like, oh, this jazz and improvised music scene—that seems like something mm-hmm. I want to explore and immerse myself in, and attend concerts uh, in. Because we've been talking about thus far, anyway. We've been talking a lot about rock. We're talking about Cream, yeah. like rock magazines or, or underground rock magazines. Do you have a sense of when you shifted into uh, other realms, other musical genres that are even more challenging than the ones like punk and? Hardcore and all those sorts of things?
1: Yeah, I mean, because I started off listening to classical music, it was like I already liked this whole other genre of music. And at one point, you know, when I listened to Yes or something like that, I could kind of relate back to the liking classical music. So I probably liked a little bit more than some people might who also like punk. Uh, And maybe the same, like jazz was also something I just had like no point of reference for. And But the library had, miles davis is kind of blue i think that was the first jazz record i heard and again i would sort of hear that maybe some rock people liked that record or was were influenced by that record um so i would check that out and i think i also heard about cecil taylor kind of early on and the blackberry actually had a cecil taylor record which i checked out and was uh, i wasn't totally ready for but Hmm. that was kind of like an early exposure to it. I mean, one thing I sometimes think about is that my parents were actually fairly observant Jews and there was, you know, a strong sense of Jewish identity in the household. And they were my parents were active in synagogue. My dad was like the treasurer of the synagogue. And so you you basically kind of grow up knowing that you're kind of in the minority. That's (laughs) that's like the majority of the people are are Christian, at least, you know, right, right, where where we were. And so you're automatically you're already subscribing to this belief that's that's essentially unpopular. But that being said, you know, none of my cousins, for the most part, who had probably a similar experience were necessarily interested in the same underground stuff. That I was. Although I did have a couple of them, one or two of them were, but not necessarily. So that and that only gets you so far.
3: <laughs> there are a few conversations in this book that delve into what we would now call sampling, uh, you know, appropriating other people's culture expression mm. and and presenting it as something new. I'm thinking off the top of my head, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking of your conversation in this book with Christian Markley. That's one that comes yeah. to mind. I feel mm-hmm. like the conversation about Sonic Youth with Yuta Kothar and there's a few others. Michael Snow's work comes to mind, even Lou Reed in the conversation about The Raven. You're talking about using other things, <laughs> other mm-hmm. people's yeah. things to try mm-hmm. to create your own thing. And mm-hmm. and for me, that stuff, like I started to be like, who's like when I would listen to a tribe called Quest or something, when I was listening to early hip hop or a public enemy, I'd be like, mm-hmm. what is this Thelonious Monk? Who And, you know, that really probably got me further into James Brown. And I've been, my whole life has felt omnipresent, but it wasn't until I heard hip hop and realized how many people were sampling all of those kinds of things, jazz records, soul records, that made me want to find them. Do you relate to that? Did you have any of that, where you, you were listening to one thing in one realm and it sent you down a road uh, towards what they were referencing, their influences, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah. I mean, for one thing, I think maybe I even talk about this in the interview with Utah, like on the Sonic Youth album, Bad Moon Rising, they sample the Stooges, not right. I mean, like, but very primitively, like it's, I think it's Lee, like kind Lee of did, recorded yeah, and, yeah. and he did some like looping of it and it's between two of the songs. And then it was sort of like, Oh, they're into this, that album, <laughs> that Stooges album too. And I, then kind of also related that to Robert Rauschenberg, actually, yeah. because one of the things that kind of got me more into contemporary art was seeing this, I think it's called Tracer. It's it's a painting by by Rauschenberg, a collage, really. And one of the things in it is this Peter Paul Rubens painting of Venus at her Toilette. And I like Peter Paul Rubens, so I was like, well, like this modern art can't be all that bad because at least this guy likes Peter Paul Rubens. <laughs> yeah. And very early on, also, I saw my mother actually took me to see this exhibition of Larry Rivers, where Larry Rivers did these huge scale paintings that were made from this coloring book of Japan, which is based on Japanese prints. But it's it's basically like, you know, they used to have these kind of coloring books. And so they, they basically kind of stencil out the outline of the figures in the painting and you're supposed to color it in. It's like for, for kids. Yeah. And so I use that, you know, on this album of covers I put up on band camp called three chords and a sword. And I kind of used that image, one of the images of a painting that I saw at this exhibition, because I felt like this was in a way was like the first time I, you know, kind of like copying these old masters paintings was the first time I kind of covered Something or like in a coloring book, you're sort of like you've got the frame there, and then you're supposed to put your own colors in that. And that I felt like that's what I was doing with a lot of the songs that are I'm covering on that album. You know, I'm taking um, actually Sonic Youth Tom Violence, which is from the record after Batman Rising, it's on Evolve. Yeah. And I'm playing the basic chord structure of it, but in a completely tun- different tuning than they are, and then adding all this stuff before it and kind of after it that's not anywhere in their song.
3: Yeah, and I mean, uh, I think among the more striking covers on this release that you're describing is uh, uh, an instrumental version of Jump by Van Halen. Right, which, right. I, was that inspired by um, the passing of Eddie Van Halen, or is that just a song that looms large for you Either anyway?
1: Sort of indirectly, because someone sent me a video of this other guy playing it on acoustic guitar, and he had transposed it to... Com- acoustic guitar almost completely like all the synth lines, like hmm. he was this guy was like a real virtuoso. And he said he did that in response to Eddie Van Halen passing. And I thought, well, that's a great idea. But um, first of all, I don't have the technical capability to, to kind of replicate what he's doing or replicate the record as completely as he did. Yeah. But, uh, but what if he played it in more of like a John Fahey style? Yeah. Uh, and accentuate the drone aspect of it. And so that's kind of where that arrangement came from. It came together pretty quickly. It took me a little while to kind of figure out a, an adequate kind of alternate version of the kind of what would be the middle eight section mm-hmm. or the bridge mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. Yeah. But that's really how I went about doing it. So you
3: exhibit, I think a real, an impressive breadth of knowledge and interest in music and art and culture. And I know from reading this book, there are instances where the subjects are surprised, (laughs) honestly, by your knowledge, the research you've done in preparing for an interview. Uh, I mean, among the most striking is Lou Reed saying, ooh, ooh, how'd you know about that? Or something like that. I don't know, I'm paraphrasing, but he just is instantly impressed. And then you include the intervention. I, you know, in our work, you have to deal with publicists sometimes saying, ah, one more question. And it's always, it's, I never like it. (laughs) <laughs> right. Beyond the actual interruption, I'm like, why is this person here involved in this process? Anyway, but yeah, yeah, Lou makes a point of saying, no, this guy, Alan, he is good. He did his research. All this to say, uh, I think that's a, it's an important part of being uh, an interviewer and interviewing multidisciplinary artists to have that foundation, this sort of, you know, broad foundation, you know, of knowledge. So I I I want to go back to your consumption of music journalism, music writing, which sounds like it dovetails with your interest in actually playing music, which is great too, because you can also, in your conversations with some of these people, you can say, I've done this. I know what you're doing because I've done it, or I'm familiar with what you're using. That's all great as well. But I just want to head back to what prompted you to think, oh, interviewing people. Writing about music, that is also something I'm interested in and what the motivation was there. Because I don't know about you, people will say, why do you like talking to people so much? And, you know, I have my answers. What are yours? Why do you like talking to people and writing about them so much, (laughs) Alan?
1: Well, in a way, it's two different things. Because in terms of writing about music, for sure, it was Lester Bang's and Richard Meltzer and Nick Tosh's and Greg Tate, who's interviewed in the book it was definitely reading their writing that I found like just as exciting as the music itself. I mean, especially, you know, Lester writing about Dan Morrison's astral weeks, you know, what that kind of like pulls out of him or the kind of how that kind of triggers his imagination to me is just as significant and just as valuable as, as the record itself. And that was like a real inspiration to me. And the sort of, again, like Richard Meltzer, just taking a record and then, then doing all this incredible kind of wordplay around it and almost treating it. And the, almost the idea of a review is almost a co- again, kind of a conceptual art project in a way, because he actually studied with Alan Capra is really, again, was like really uh, influential on me. And I, I mean, I definitely see myself as more of a historian than a journalist per se, you know, like everybody in the book has a kind of a history to them. I'm not someone that's ever gone out and interviewed the hot new band to see what their story is, you know, for the the magazine or something like that. So that was the the start of mine to write about music or the notion that like writing about music could be as exciting as playing it. If you did it right. Hmm. And in terms of interviewing, you know, in Rolling Stone, they would have these long interviews with people and it wouldn't just, you know, I'm, I've kind of mentioned this writer named Jonathan Cot a few times, mm-hmm. I think. in when people have asked me about the book, because Jonathan Cot was an early editor at Rolling Stone and he would interview people like Mick Jagger and John Lennon and Ray Davies and Pete Townsend, but he would also interview Glenn Gould and Stockhausen. He has a whole book of interviews with Stockhausen and Jean-Luc Godard. Mm. And, you know, Paul Williams was interviewing Philip K. Dick for Rolling Stone and, Uh, I remember Griel Marcus interviewing actually the novelist John Irving Hmm. in Rolling Stone. So Rolling Stone was sort of like, it's sort of the last vestiges of the counterculture, but the whole idea of the counterculture was like, well, if you like rock music, then you might also like Indian music or British folk music, or you might also like some of these underground sci-fi writers, or you might also like, you know, this movie or that movie, or it was like a whole kind of cross-cultural thing and i think that's sort of lacking now yeah. in in whatever coverage there is of of music you know you're not going to find out anything about any of the other art forms from pitchfork that's or even from Aquarian drunkard really <laughs> i mean that's
3: interest. that's interesting because in a sense we live in the most open-ended time in terms of information uh you know if, if people listening to this hear us talk about to hear you talk about cecil taylor and they're intrigued by that that discussion they can almost instantly access almost all if not all of cecil's music on the internet so but i do feel like that that level of information that the the information is kind of almost curbed curiosity because it doesn't feel special anymore because it's all just there you go like yeah Yeah. you take we kind of are taking it for granted and so I, i i hear you on that
1: yeah. That I mean, also forced exposure magazine, you know, in the eighties, which is more of an underground publication, yeah. but they would also like the cover story would always be this very long, detailed interview with whoever was on the cover and it would never be kind of release driven or product driven. Like they would put chain gang on the cover where this was like kind of hardly known at all in New York band. It only recorded three or four singles up to that time. None of which yeah. had been, Released anywhere near where they did this interview, but they were like, we have these singles and we really like them, and we want to talk to these guys about like what their deal is. And so it'd be like this long interview, but it wasn't because they had a new album out or something like that. If you weren't trying to promote something, it's because right. these guys liked it and they were kind of like, let's talk to these guys and see what their their deal is. And it was even I think it would even be the same of when they put Diamond the Glass on the cover yeah. or Savage Pen again and, and Pencil is on the cover, and it's like. Force exposure was like the one publication that kind of carried on this counterculture idea of like, you know, where there's like a book review section that's like, well, if you like this, all these records we're talking about, you might also be interested in all these books that are cyberpunk or they're kind of like post literature or, yeah, you know, whatever it is.
3: I wonder if you have any thoughts about the connection between um, subversive counterculture as you describe it and, and open-mindedness. I mean, you talked about how Rolling Stone among others, and forced exposure probably as well, seem to intimate, if you like rock and roll, you might like this other thing. Uh, yeah. and, and to me, w- w- there's a knot of stuff going on in that sort of pronouncement, because yes, if you like challenging, if you if you feel exhilarated by the challenge of rock and roll, you might be intrigued by these other forms. Like, that's an interesting point of view or argument I suppose and I wonder again like what do you make of that like cuz in your book everyone here is a subversive artist of some sort everyone here is kind <laughs> of challenging the norm in some capacity right. and you have to be open minded you have to be someone like you who can as i say in the moment call upon knowledge uh you know someone says something and you can be like oh yeah that's so and so or that's from that and they're like oh this is my this I relate to this person. <laughs> they are open. Yeah. They are open-minded as I am open-minded. They are searching and curious as as I am searching and curious. So, uh, yeah. Sorry. What do you make of that?
1: I know. I know. It's it's just for whatever reason. I just always want to get deeper and deeper into something if I'm already interested in it and already invested in it. You know, even with guitar. You know, I basically learned. You know, anything you would need to know to play standard rock music in the first two years of playing guitar. But then I wanted to join what they called stage bands in junior high school, which is basically like jazz band. So then I had to take jazz guitar lessons to figure out what the chords are that you had to know to play in that. So then it became like, okay, I want to get a little deeper into the instrument and, and learn something beyond that. And as a result, I, I kind of started listening to jazz a little bit more, after that. And it was never really, I knew it was never really going to be my primary genre to, to work in, but you know, I kind of, I learned it just so I could just keep playing music with people in another way. And then later in high school, I kind of stumbled onto the, the Coltrane modal period through the record impressions. And like the track India, especially was like, I listened to that and I thought, okay, this is more what I, I alike because it's only one chord, but it's it's also more complicated than that because he's playing all these scales on top of the one chord that are not necessarily the scale of the one chord that he's in. He's but then he's resolving back to that. Hmm. And I sort of recognize that from having listened to Alan Holdsworth, who, you know, again is like my friends in the band, you know, the cover band I was in then who are big Van Halen fans knew about from reading Guitar Player Magazine, they're like, well, a. Van Halen likes this guy, Alan Holdsworth. Right. And a lot of what Eddie Van Halen is doing is sort of uh, kind of like derived from what Alan Holdsworth is doing. But Alan Holdsworth is like this hardcore, like fusion. He's not like a hard rock performer, really. Mm. He's, he's kind of like progressive rock or fusion. Uh, and then, of course, Alan Holdsworth had always been saying, well, I listen to saxophone players like John Coltrane. And now I kind of, I understood a little bit more, you know, what he was talking about. And then it kind of went from there. then I heard more John Coltrane and there's, he's doing Afro blue. And I realized, Oh, this is what the doors are playing in the middle of universal mind on absolutely line.
3: Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then I'm like, well, and then I started putting it all together. It's like, well, actually the doors, when they're jamming in the middle of light, my fire is modal jazz essentially. And the almond brothers, when they're jamming on dreams is modal jazz essentially. And the Jefferson Airplane is like you know it's like when they do these kind of like it's all these modal jams and there's, these guys are all listening to Coltrane. Even Neil Young, I think, at one point admitted like "Down by the River" and some of those kind of jams. It's like he was like, "Yeah, I was listening to Coltrane." You're kind of so that kind of it all then it all starts to like coalesce hmm. in a way.
3: So what is, what do you think of the fact that uh, I think what you're basically describing is a link between psychedelia and jazz.
1: Um, Well, at least that those guys were listening to, Coltrane and some of those some of those other people in jazz. Like at that time, that was kind of like, again, it's like it's again. I think what you're saying about being open minded is a big point of it. I think one thing about musicians is they really are music fanatics. Like I think most musicians listen to way more music, or at least the musicians of that generation, and probably other generations too. They listen to way more music than you might suspect, even from listening to their music. And they're always kind of curious yeah. to know more about it because that's its what they really love.
3: I don't want to get too neurological here, but I do feel like, you know, to be an open-minded music listener... Is to accept the fact that you're going to start to input information that is actually going to be mind expanding. Yeah. Uh, You're actually going to broaden your horizons as a thinker. And that's what music does for me. You know, I I, I don't know. I've never really articulated this way, but I think Mm -hmm. that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking to be challenged and I'm looking to have something. What is it? What do they say? You know, I'm looking to have my mind blown. And I feel like all of the artists you're talking about and all the artists that you are talking about in this book are into that into the right. notion that these parameters don't matter. Among the, I would call them maybe, I don't know if you agree with this, but among the avatars, recurring avatars in this book, Sonic Youth seems to come up a lot. And they're important to me. I gather they're important to you. We were talking about uh, Lee Ronaldo earlier and, mm-hmm. and the Todd Haynes film about the Velvet Underground. Todd Haynes worked with Lee uh, in some capacity on the uh, soundtrack for the Bob Dylan experimental film (laughs) i'm not there at one point in your conversation with yuda yuda exclaims todd Haynes should make a sonic youth film which i thought was interesting (laughs) right like that's interesting what is the deal with sonic youth if i may What, what is going on with them they seem to capture a lot of what we're talking about as an entity like they multidisciplinary totally challenging everyone all the time almost existing in their own plane, yet resonating. What do you make of what I'm saying here? Is Sonic Youth as important to this book and and our current way of consuming culture as I, I'm leading people to believe right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think just because I got to know them personally so early on, the reason there, there's never been an interview is because i have just been talking to them <laughs> as sort of like a fellow traveler, I think you know, since the love child days, like in the very late eighties, you know, like the same time I was doing that, I was playing with this guy, Rudolph Gray, the guitarist. And like, I had kind of discovered him from this cassette called All Guitars. That was There was a cassette magazine called Tell Us. And it got written up in the New York Times. Uh, Robert Palmer had this column called Pop Life every week. And one week, the subject was electric guitars. And he was talking about, Sonic Youth and Glen Bronca is kind of like this kind of like new wave of very fresh guitar music. And he said that Thurston and Lee had tracks on this cassette and so did Glen Bronca. So I was like, well, oh, I, I should go out and get this cassette. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got Bad Moon Rising at the same time, but Rudolph Gray had a track on this cassette that I really liked. And, uh, but nobody knew anything about this guy. And then, maybe a few months after that, there was an ad in um, forced exposure f- for Thurston's ecstatic piece label. And he had was, he was putting out a record by this guy, Rudolph Gray. And it said X Mars slash Lydia slash maybe Bronca guitar killer. And I was like, wow, he played with all these people. Why have I never heard of him before? And then this other fanzine, I think had, written about him and kind of made contact with him. And then I kind of got in touch with the fanzine And I was like, do you have, and they sent me some more recordings and they put me in touch with him. And I was doing, I was in college at that point, I was doing a radio show and I invited Rudolph to come up and it was Vaster College in Poughkeepsie. And it turned out that Poughkeepsie was the hometown of Ed Wood. Oh yeah. Right. The director. Yeah. And that Rudolph was researching this book about Ed Wood, like a biography of Ed Wood. And he was like, Poughkeepsie, huh? And amazingly, like in the years he'd been researching this, he'd never gone up to Poughkeepsie. He was based in New York, huh. but he'd never gone up to Poughkeepsie, which is maybe like two hours north of the city, Do any research up there. So he was like, he was like, yeah, I'll come up there. I'll be on your radio show and play my music and talk about my career. But, you know, can you like just kind of drive me around Poughkeepsie a little bit too, because I want to do research, my book. And I, I said, sure. So yeah, we had him up and he played a bunch of, things, which is really cool. So and then that's sort of how I got to know Sonic Youth more personally, because like I, I then kind of interviewed him for a fanzine, and that was actually the first interview. It's not in this book, but it's really kind of one of the first interviews I did. I mean, I think I interviewed some of the interviews I did for the Lamont Young article I did for Forced Exposure might have been just before that, maybe in nineteen eighty seven, seven or eighty-eight. But it was all kind of right around the same time. And, um, yeah, so I interviewed him and then maybe a year after the interview, Thurston asked him to play this thing at the knitting factory that was called Thurston's rock and roll circus, where he had different acts playing. And Rudolph was going to play with the drummer, David Linton. And, uh, he asked me to play bass. I didn't have a bass, but I said, okay. And I wound up borrowing Kim Gordon's bass (laughs) to play with Rudolph and we just played for like 15 minutes, but Thurston was like pretty, pretty astounded
3: hmm.
1: by it. And like, you know, Thurston was played a solo set there. And I think all the members of Sonic Youth were there, but I was, you know, I was a 20, 20 or 21 years old. It's just a kid. Nobody had any idea who I was, but it yeah. just kind of went from there. Cause then the next year Rudolph was recording a record and he asked me to play on the record. And then the record was produced by Thurston and Don Fleming and, uh, Tom Sergal and Rashid hmm. Ali was playing drums <laughs> on the record and Jim Sauter from Port of Magus was playing. Oh, Sad. Wow. So again, it was like, you know, sort of this unbelievable like entree into, uh, you know, recording music and just just having all those people around kind of shepherding me along and kind of allowing me to, you know, make an entrance this way was was really kind of mind boggling to me.
3: So you have this personal connection with them that's obviously transformed your life. Uh, That's, that's fair. Uh,
1: But I had something uh, to communicate with them about, and that's a big part of what this book is kind of all about. Like I had a lot of common ground with them. It wasn't just like waving at them saying like, I like your records. It was like, we're both interested in the same stuff. We both are interested in this guy, Rudolph Gray. We're both interested in, free jazz were both interested in sort of this minimalism from the 60s and 70s were both you know kind of it just kind of all developed from there you know when I I had done this interview with Charlemagne Palestine for uh, Option magazine that sort of got cut off because Charlemagne became sort of erratic (laughs) and uh, you know I heard that Lee was helping this guy reissue Charlemagne's first album and he was doing the digital transfer I mentioned, like, you know, I did this whole interview with this guy and it was in this article, but not completely. And Lee was like, well, Sonic Death is doing a fanzine, like their fan club was doing a fanzine. Like, we'd love to, like, publish that. And so I gave it, you know, to him. And even, like, there was one gig at the Ritz, which was a benefit for WFMU, the radio station, and Love Child played and the Dim Stars played, which was Thurston, Steve, Richard Hell, and Don. Fleming. It was the only gig they ever played. They Holy one, shit. They put out one album and like a triple single on forced exposure or, or ecstatic Peace or something. It was the only gig they ever played and Sonic Youth headlined. And in between the songs, Sonic Youth played again, like a, when we were talking about sampling before, they played some of Tony Conrad's Outside the Dream Syndicate record, like probably on, just on a cassette, like through the amps. And that record hadn't been reissued at all, but I had it. A, a dub of it, like a cassette dub of it. And I was like, so excited to hear it. And I kind of like ran up to Thurston <laughs> afterwards. And he was like, did you know where we were playing between songs? Cause he already knew I was interested in Lamont Young and stuff like that. I was like, Tony Conrad. And he was just like, I cannot believe you knew what that, what that was. Yeah. That's... You know, it was so, it was so obscure at that, at that time, you know? Yeah. Um, so again, it's like, it's again, this whole idea of having, something in common with people. And that's why they were so significant to me, because one of the ways I found out about them was there was this whole, you know, wrote this whole letter to the village voice after one review of, I think it was confusion is sex where the critic was just kind of making them sound like an offshoot of Glenn Bronca and was really like leaning heavily on the Glenn Bronca kind of involvement or association and Thurston was like, well, there's a lot more to it than that. Like, our favorite bands are, and he listed all these bands. They were all my favorite bands. <laughs> it was like, you know, I mean, it was hardcore bands like Minor Thread and The Minutemen and um, Black Flag. But then it was also, like, older things like MC5 and the Studios. Yeah. What you would imagine. So that was already kind of, like, cluing me in, like, oh, these, you know, there's sort of, like... Again, it's sort of like whatever a critic may glean from the record, there's usually a lot more going on uh, with people kind of like behind the scenes.
3: Absolutely. And my interactions with Lee in particular and Thurston uh, and, and, you know, you you can see it in any interviews they've done or any documentary footage there is of them. They are true enthusiasts and they are true enthusiasts for not only the knowledge uh, and sharing the knowledge, you know, playing that tape, Tony Conrad tape, is meant to share. Like it's not meant to be an insular thing. Uh, It's meant to be like, this is something we love and we want to share it. So there's the knowledge. But what I've always loved about Lee in particular and I communicate and they seem very interested and open in communicating with like-minded people. And so I feel like that comes through in your work. Like this is 25 years of interviews. You are connecting with people for magazine assignments that's really cold I feel like you pitch these things because you're interested in them and it's the same reason I will say that I do what I do I yeah. very—I I resist assignments I'd rather be like I, I care about this and you seem very interested in communicating with them the subjects of your conversations but also communicating their thoughts to others through the magazine articles through this book and I just want to say like I relate to that I think it's commendable and I I hope you you feel that love back from people like <laughs> oh, that's people like me. No, the the book is beautiful, and like there are people here I don't know about. There there are when I'm reading the Michael Snow piece, and you reference the fact that Michael's uh, group CCMC opened for Sonic Youth. I saw I don't know how many times they did that. Did that happen more <laughs> than once? I saw that happen in Toronto.
1: Probably not very much. I mean, it's I'm sure that yeah. was probably the only time.
3: Yeah. So I'm drawn to. Like you're communicating these things, and you've you've ascend, assembled them here. But now I'm drawn to it because so many of these people I relate to, and the uh, shared memories are here for me personally. And then every once in a while, I'm, I, there are people I don't, I'm not familiar with, and I'm like, this is amazing, thought provoking, <laughs> interesting. I'm altered for the day, at least <laughs> if not longer. I don't know yet. So it's a remarkable achievement. Um, oh, thank you. Just 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 in a logistical level, how did you? Are there things that I don't know how many there are in here. How many interviews are in here? I
1: think it's twenty-eight. I think it's it, what it wound up being.
3: And and it's uh, I don't want to scare people, but it's like almost six hundred pages. <laughs> but it, but it's also but very compact. Uh, so it it's a it's an odd format. It's not a traditional. My yeah. wife looked at it and she's in publishing. She's like, well, those are yeah. that's about two hundred and fifty words a page or something. Like she, it's yeah. like a it's not that mind-boggling, but it's it's really wonderful. But is there anything that didn't make it? that you wish had or that you couldn't for logistical or legal reasons or anything like that?
1: Not for legal reasons. There was one interview that we had prepared that had been published before. I don't want to name names, but it was someone that we sent it to and they just didn't want us to reprint it. So we just left it out.
3: Okay. Otherwise this is, is there anything you can say in a general sense about why, these particular 28 interviews were selected for this volume?
1: Uh, Primarily because they represented interviews that had never been published as Q&A interviews before. There's a few exceptions to that, like the interview with Michael and the interview with Iron Georgia and uh, the interview with Rudy Wurlitzer, the interview with uh, Reese Chatham. But in all those cases, it was something where the Transcript had been shortened yeah. uh, for space for whatever publication it was. And so we just let it run much longer. A lot of these, I never had transcribed my own questions because I had interviewed the person for a profile in a magazine. Right. And I knew it was because it wasn't going to be Q&A. I didn't even like bother to transcribe when I was doing transcription. I didn't bother to write down like what my questions were. So then I had to go back and listen to the tapes and, and transcribe the full conversation. And uh, a couple of these were brand new. The one with Greg Tate was brand new. And the one with Kelly Reichert was brand new. Hmm. The only interview here that appears exactly as it did when it was first published is the one with Adris Hoyos, which was in Chick Factor. Oh, okay. uh, Magazine. Uh, And everything else is either longer or had, had not been published before. Like the interview with Tom Verlaine was only done for radio. So it was an audio only interview. And the, this is the first time there's ever been a transcription and the same with the Glenn Branca right interview. That was like a live talk for Red Bull Music Academy. And um, we transcribed it and, you know, this is the first time it's appearing.
3: Well, I mean, it's remarkable. You mentioned Greg Tate and I uh, interacted with Greg at the Guelph Jazz Festival when uh, Burn Sugar yeah. played many, many years ago. And uh, yeah. anyway, and the suicide interview is really fascinating. And they're they're all really fascinating I, i'm i'm a big fan of them so no it's i will say as a long-winded interviewer i appreciated the brevity of those questions that you transcribed that that's <laughs> that struck me some of your you you will occasionally expand upon where you're coming from but a lot of your questions are very blunt and they get people talking
1: right because i was just trying to get information from them to use a quote in a, a profile like you know i was trying to keep it some cases i was there, there might have been a time constraint but also i just it wasn't meant to be a conversation in print. So, I mean, if it became a conversation, then that's fine. I think that's probably true of something like the Matthew Barney interview, which was definitely for this very short, you know, like one page long article in Sight and Sound magazine, which is a film magazine. And in the interview, I think the the final published piece, I, I only used two or three quotes from a 4,000 word interview. Yeah. So that became more of a conversation, but essentially I was just trying to get his take on a, a couple of different Things that I sort of like come away from uh, his work thinking about and seeing if those, you know, kind of past muster right. with him or like how he felt about it. Like the the one with Alessandro Navaga, which was actually like an email interview that we did for Bomb magazine that for sure was intended to be a conversation. I think my questions are much longer right. in that one than they probably are in, in some of the other interviews in the book.
3: Well, you, you mentioned how you were, you know, those long-form interviews in, in places like uh, Rolling Stone and, and maybe Forced Exposure. Maybe you alluded to that. They left an impression on you that there were these long-form mm-hmm. interviews. Something about interviewing has really heightened the interest in interviews. Like, here we are, we're doing a podcast podcasting and radio and all like podcasting is the long, a lot of it is long form interviews. And I feel like we were going through a phase there where the companies were telling us that people's attention spans were shorter and shorter and shorter and everything had to be very digestible. And, and that's still, I think, true. But on the other side of it, you have this whole industry of interviewing where everyone's sharing conversations they have. For me, this is relatively new. Uh, I mean, not for me in my practice, I've been doing this a long time, but it's relatively new to have so many people interested in overhearing (laughs) these somewhat informal conversations and formal interviews. Do you have any take on that? Why are people suddenly interested in hearing other people talk?
1: Yeah, I agree that it's it's a reasonably new phenomenon. And I also find it interesting and and I don't really have an explanation (laughs) for why. Yeah, that's the case or why it's become so popular or I mean, I sometimes listen to podcasts. I don't listen to them a whole lot. I mean, there's like literally hundreds of thousands. There's so
3: many. Yeah, it's impossible of them. It's like,
1: you know, I mean, I've listened to a few of your podcasts and and, uh, some of the other ones that I've been that I've been doing, you know, in in trying to talk about the book. I've kind of gone back and listened to other podcasts that have happened. I guess if it was popular in print, it stands to reason that it could be popular you know, in an audio form. And of course, talk shows, I think have, have always been popular and those are much yeah, those, shorter. Those
3: are succinct and packaged and you kind of know the story yeah. before it starts, you know, the segment's probably going to be done in eight to 10 minutes and you're going to move on with your life. But as you yeah. are someone who does interviews. So, yeah. and, and you've never, have you ever contemplated uh, sharing these tapes of like, like I look at this guest list, if you will, on, <laughs> you know, the the subject list on your book one of the reasons I started getting into radio was because I had the same experience as you. I was a print journalist and I would spend 45 minutes with someone. And then the, the magazine that I primarily wrote for would say, okay, we need 300 words. I know that, I know that was going to be 800 words, but we've changed. Now it's gonna be 300 words. So I'd be like 300 words. What, what there's this 45 minute conversation was so good. So that compelled me. And I asked my now wife, like, let's start a college radio show And we'll play an hour of music, and then an hour will be devoted, well, depending on the length of the interview. But the second hour will always include a long-form interview. And it was ostensibly that. I just wanted to share it. Like, I I felt shitty to be sitting on this tape that I thought was good. And maybe it wasn't, but I just thought, like, if you're a fan of this artist, like, I got to talk to Diamond Goss. Like, I got to talk to so many interesting people, Patty Smith, and there was nothing I could do with these things other than, like, this short print thing which also I think only reached a certain amount of people and I just wanted to multimedia <laughs> it in the in the early part of the century I felt like compelled to like share the audio share the print and so now it's an explosion of that so sorry long-winded interviewer do you feel like you, yeah. you might want to share some of these tapes at some point
1: I could but they would have to be digitized for one thing and also edited because even though these are reasonably full transcript, they're not obviously completely full. Yeah. You know, we take out ahs and ooms and then there's sometimes, you know, there's other things to get edited out. Uh and also they would some of them would actually need to be pitch corrected because I was using different tape yeah, recorders absolutely. over yeah. the years. Yeah. And so now it's <laughs> like, you know, some of them are really even the Lou Reed one is a little bit high pitch. Yeah. Which is not impossible. And actually Blank Forms has expressed some willingness to digitize these. Oh cool. Uh, But that's like a whole other project, which, you know, I would, the answer is yes, I could uh, (laughs) be interested in that, but it it was not something I can just, it's not like I can just start uploading them right away, because virtually everything is on analog tape. Yeah,
3: all I'm getting at, I guess, uh, there, Alan, is I think you're a wondrous interviewer. And I, I know there would be an audience to hear your conversations, even if you're not digging through the archive. But basically, I'm looking for more competition please enter the enter the <laughs> podcast realm or, or enter the realm of of Madam. I'm not just I'm obviously just teasing but at the same I don't want to you you're doing a wonderful work and these interviews are really compelling on the page but uh just to, the nature of who I am I want more I'm selfish I want to hear right. I want to hear them or see them you know and that's maybe just right. the age we're in anyway. It's a wondrous book. Uh, it is called, just for, I've already established what it's called, but it's called Common Tones, Selected Interviews with Artists and Musicians, 1995 to 2020. And uh, it is out via Blank Form Editions, as I think you just mentioned. Where can people go to yes. obtain this book, learn more about this book on the internet or what have you?
1: Uh, for sure at their website, I think is you know, Blank Forms. I don't know if it's .org or .com. DAP is the distributor of the book. And I, I have been seeing it now in in bookstores and so on and so forth. So, yeah.
3: What about you? Are, can people follow you per se on social media, or do you have a website? Anything mm-hmm. like
1: that? Yeah, I'm on this, I'm on Instagram, which is at Irvi I R V I F R A N. I'm on Twitter, which is at Licked Allen, uh, with the L capitalized and the A capitalized, the first A capitalized. And I do have I've a, a website, which is alanlick.com and then a tumblr page which is alanlick.tumblr.com the tumblr page is updated much more frequently than the website which is pretty much dormant but the website has a lot of old archival stuff it's it's sort of like anything from you know 1990 to 2014 or 15 is probably on the website but anything i do anything i do since then i just kind of update the tumblr blog
3: Okay. What's sort of next for you beyond this? We've been talking about this book. Uh, What else? Do you have any music uh, projects or any other writings that we should uh, be aware of?
1: Yeah, I actually have Emmett Kelly the guitarist who plays with Will. Yeah. I'm I'm amazed you haven't asked me about Will.
3: Well, uh yeah, sorry Will Will so so will, I I appreciate your amazement. Will is not a subject a subject of this book. He is also I mentioned Sonic Youth, but Will comes up quite a bit just in your conversations with people saying, "Oh, I saw this band open for Will" or "I was that the thing when Will was there." uh yes i love will uh there's no secret there uh he's not a part of this book so and but you also did write
1: okay fair enough
3: yeah that was it i was just trying to as much as i'm a long-winded interviewer i try to stay focused uh no i love will you and i are both friendly with
1: will no we know i yeah i know i know
3: yeah (laughs) did will have Uh, any anyway yeah at any rate Emmett
1: Emmett plays a lot with will and uh i of knew him I guess I know him through well. I don't know if I know him some other way. But at any rate, he's putting out a cassette of more solo. A couple of things are solo guitar. And one thing is is a cover, again, of the Richard Thompson song, Night Comes In. Oh, nice. Uh, That was done live just one time. You know, so you know, uh, Richard, I think he's done now, and I yeah. think it's uh, right. He was on your show. Rich, that was one of the ones I, I listened to. Actually, I was happy with that and one. I read his memoir. Yeah, I was
3: happy with that one. I I wasn't sure what to expect, and uh, to be honest, it was a technical nightmare. Speaking of your Lou Reed high pitch <laughs> situation, there was a delay, and yeah. I took a lot of editing, but uh, I was happy with that one. Have you ever had uh, a chance to speak with him?
1: I haven't, but you know, Henry Kaiser is someone who's been kind of a mentor to me, and is someone I've known for. Oh, over 30 years and henry of course is has recorded a few records with richard thompson yeah. he knows richard so um
3: oddly enough ironically richard, richard and i richard yeah.
1: and i have have henry in common if if nothing else
3: ironically i brought up will to richard thompson and not to you which is funny because you i didn't get this chance to articulate this you actually uh, are involved in a book about will uh, an interview book right, right?
1: Right, like a full-length interview.
3: But, right, and that's yeah, that's yeah. just you and him in conversation? That's the deal?
1: Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Will Oldham on Bonnie Prince Billy, which was sort of intended to be part of the Favor and Favor director-on-director series, like Cassavetes on Cassavetes yeah. and Scorsese on Scorsese and Herzog on Herzog.
3: And what was that project like for you? Was it illuminating? Was it... Uh was it intimidating
1: (laughs) all all the above? I mean, it was, it was great because I got to spend time with my friend who, you know, and I think the fact that I knew will from even before he was performing music, uh, at least publicly. Yeah. I think that sort of helped, uh, cement that. So it wasn't like a journalist interviewing him or someone else who had only come, only knew him, uh, like as a, as a performer.
3: Um, Will Will sees things in people, I think uh, special things in people that maybe we don't, or they don't see. I I say we, because his comments over the years are among the things that kind of spur me on, keep me going. He's been very gracious about my ability to have nice conversations with him in particular, which I think for him, and I'm sure you get this, like again, the Lou Reed, I can hear Lou Reed's voice, as he exclaims in <laughs> joy at just engaging with you and not really wanting the interview to end despite what the publicist is urging. Right. And I, I would get that a little bit from Will too. Like, and, and he, that's what he would say early on. You have no idea what it's like talking to people. Like people <laughs> don't seem interested when, when an interviewer is interested and engaged with what I'm doing. It means the world, and and I think that's why I think that's why uh, our our interactions have resonated with him, and why we still remain friendly and stay in touch. And I mean, that's another weird thing. I don't know if you've had. Do you have this? Do you do you maintain rapports with interview subjects after you've talked to them?
1: I'm kind of like looking through the list to see.
3: I mean, we talked about Sonic Youth, and you developed a camaraderie there, of course.
1: Right. I mean, that's just looking through it. I mean, it's all different kinds of, a lot of them I had a rapport with even before I did the interview. And sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll bump into someone somewhere and they'll, and they'll remember the interview and, and usually they'll remember it fondly. Like, you know, actually blank forms had a gala, you know, they have one of their gala benefit nights and they had Martin Rev play. And it was a couple of years ago. And I went, and uh said hi to him afterwards and kind of reminded him that i'd interviewed him and he was like he's like to this day that's i think of that as being the best interview that suicide ever gave it's amazing yeah he said that and like the first like the first article about suicide still kind of like which appeared i think in a british music magazine that also stands in his mind but probably Stands out in his mind, but maybe only because it was the first one.
3: That's not that. But he really
1: felt that the article, you know, the article that I wrote about them, which was based on the interview, but had a lot of my own you know, impressions of them Also, yeah. he just, uh, he just felt that was, that was, really I,
3: I, I do take uh, that to heart when it happens to me where people are like, yeah, I loved it. And I'm, and they come back and they want to talk to you some more. And uh, and I don't know why, I don't know if you have that <laughs> feeling. Like, I'm like, I don't know what I, I did, but they want to come back and talk again and they enjoyed it. And that,
1: well, yeah, well, even the interview with Tom Verlaine, that, that was actually the third time that I interviewed him. I'd interviewed him, I think once, and he kind of got me this Gig of writing liner notes for the reissues of the television oh, records yeah. that Rhino was yeah. doing, so I interviewed him and I interviewed Richard Lloyd, and then um, I think when he was putting those two records out on uh, Thorough Jockey, I, I don't remember if I pitched it to the wire or they asked me, but I interviewed him for that, and then right after that, Thor Jockey wanted him to do this promo only radio interview that would be kind of sent to European radio stations and they asked him who he'd want to do it with. And he was like, well, actually, when I just do it with Alan oh, again, nice. it's yeah. like, it like, you know, he's like, he enjoyed the other interviews. So, so there's a good example of, you know, kind of repeat customers.
3: Yeah. That, that means that's about the most meaningful thing for me is, is if the guest is uh, it's weird, right? Because we're interviewers. Uh, there's some measure of journalism there. There's probably an underlying current of, of critical analysis. But I ultimately am most happy when the guest is how the subject is feel, feels at ease and comfortable, uh, because that's what makes a good conversation, <laughs> you know. Like, and so yeah. I view them as conversations in that way and, and being engaged. So all this to say, and I think we went on a tangent because you brought up Will, and uh, and mm-hmm. I apologize, but uh, yeah,
1: I, all I was. Oh, saying- so anyway, anyway, I have the cassette coming out yeah. and also recording a new solo guitar album that VDSQ will release. But not until 2023, so okay, don't hold your breath, but you can <laughs> look forward to that.
3: Okay, cool. <laughs> Supply chain issues and whatnot, probably, uh, pandemic. Yeah, I think
1: that, yeah, I think that's what it is. Yeah. I, he has, I maybe, maybe they have some other things already in the pipeline too, but yeah, it's just everything's moving a bit slowly. These okay, days.
3: Well, well, as I say, I hope everyone follows you on your various uh platforms to figure out what's going on with you. If there's a song, uh, normally I go out on a song, we're talking about a book, uh, the subjects are. Uh, you interviewing other subjects, but you did recently, and you sent it to me, you sent me your your covers uh, release. And uh, that's one thing. But is there anything by you that we could go out on that, I don't know, somehow encapsulates (laughs) what we've been talking about? Is there anything that comes to mind?
1: Well, I mean, one of the things, you know, you you talked about like sampling and uh, things like that. And there were kind of two tracks I did about 20 years ago that that people seem to respond to. There was that one where I, I took a Donna Summer track and I kind of sampled just like four bars, but I each bar I would kind of repeat for about five minutes. So it wound up being like 20 minutes <laughs> long. Right. Uh, and then there was the other one called uh, A New York Minute uh, where I recorded the weather re- forecast off uh, news radio every day for a month and then edited it down so we would have that day's forecast and then the following days and then it would be butted right up against the next day so you could see how accurate the forecast was or wasn't and those are both I mean especially the weather forecast one is an example of recording something that ordinarily doesn't get recorded and and the you know what we were saying about podcasts and these interviews it's like some of the interest to me is you're recording something that ordinarily doesn't get recorded. You can have amazing, Mm -hmm. I had so many great conversations with Will before I did that book. And this was an opportunity to actually like record one and then kind of have it down for posterity. And so that's a little bit what the, because I did have a habit of listening to this, the weather forecast on news radio every morning. And it was sort of like, I mean, my, my parents again, like didn't really listen to music, but one thing they did listen to was news radio every morning at breakfast like before my father would go off to work he would always have that station on and then I just kind of got in the habit of when I became an adult and was going off to work every morning uh, I would listen to it also just I would actually set my alarm to it to wake up and then just see what the weather was going to be so it was this kind of like this. it was like this kind of daily ritual in a way and uh, again like after becoming interested in this kind of music that foregrounds repetition like minimalism. I thought, well, this is an example of it in my daily life. And if I just kind of record it and use that as material, then I'm kind of it's like it's actually this kind of repetitive piece that's sort of been in the making for the last ten or fifteen years.
3: <laughs> well why well it sounds like maybe you're leaning more towards us going out on a New York minute. Is that fair? Sure. Why not? All right. This is uh and this oh sorry, who's involved is this just you, Alan?
1: Yeah, it was just me. I think I did edit it at the Sonic Youth studio with Aaron Mullen, who was their sound person who they had discovered at Tonic where I, I used to work there working. Yeah. 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 So again, it's, you know, it's all kind of like a small all place, connected.
3: But, yeah. oh, that's fitting that this New York uh, community is reflected in a song called New York minute. So this is Alan Licht with New York minute. Alan, this is a tremendous pleasure to speak oh, with you. Same and here. I, I really love this book. I hope people check it out. And it was nice connecting again. And I wish you the best with everything in the future.
1: Yeah. Hope to come back and uh, talk some more.
3: Well, League, uh, clouds
0: hanging tough now, and there actually are a few snow flurries off to our north and west, and one or two of those may wander down across the area. On the other hand, it is getting slightly milder, and we're continuing to be optimistic that the temperature actually inches above freezing by a degree or two this afternoon. And temperatures tomorrow will be similar, although there's a better chance for some snow to fall out of the clouds tomorrow, especially in the afternoon. Could be uh, some melting of that snow on city streets, but maybe a covering to even an inch or two in the suburbs. That snow still coming our way, Dr. Joe Sobel? Yeah, it sure is, James. And there's some pretty good snows falling across uh, parts of western Maryland into central Pennsylvania. Some places have had a quick two, three inches uh, worth of snow, and some places may even wind up with four or five. Well, we kind of think that's not going to happen around these parts. Not the four or five. The two or three could, though, from uh, Interstate 80 and 287 on to the north and to the west in the city. Some of that snow will melt on city streets. But there could be a covering to an inch. Uh, we think the snow will begin afternoon, maybe 1-ish or 2 o'clock or so, and then continue into the evening. Tomorrow will turn out partly sunny.
5: We've well, we got a good deal of sunshine here for the rest of the day. Not a bad day at all by January standards, with temperatures getting up uh, to around 40 degrees this afternoon. Partly cloudy tonight, upper
4: 20s. And then for tomorrow, once again, a little bit of sunshine and 40. Okay, it's a nice day out there. A lot nicer than we've seen over the past four weeks. Uh, there's some sunshine, and we're expecting a high here in Midtown of 42 degrees, and that's going to feel like a heat wave compared to the last four weeks. Uh, clouds will be moving in tonight. Now, I'll tell you what's going on. There's a area of low pressure coming in from the west, and that's going to try to trigger a surface wave of low pressure over the ocean tomorrow. So plenty of clouds, and it looks like snow showers, possibly mixed with rain right along the coast. We're calling for a high of 36 degrees, but it might be as high as 40 degrees, especially along coastal areas. Oh, we do have the clouds in place right now. Precipitation, according to 1010 Winds Doppler Radar, is uh, still across southern New Jersey, but spreading northward and uh, give it a couple of hours. I think it will start to rain here in New York City. A little bit of snow mixed in there as well, not bringing any accumulation, however. High temperature, 39 degrees. Mixed precipitation ends as all snow tonight, giving a fresh covering to an inch or so, but roads could become icy as we go through the night tonight. 28 degrees are low, then winded cold the next couple of days. Some sunshine, 33 degrees to high tomorrow. For
6: most of the area, no real problems, although right now in parts of Suffolk County, it's uh, snowing pretty hard. and Coating to an inch can accumulate this morning. Elsewhere, just some flurries and uh, then sunshine taking over. Afternoon temperatures will be around 30 to 35 with wind chill in the single digits. Fair windy and cold tonight, low 18. Tomorrow's sunny cold, high 30.
0: It uh, feels like a cold one outside, too. Wind chill factors are in the single digits and teens, and in the gusts, even drop below zero. It's going to be a sunny day, but that sun's not going to add a whole lot of warmth. High temperature only near 30. But tomorrow, Sunshine combines with the southwesterly wind, and we look for temperatures to climb some 10 to even 20 degrees higher tomorrow, which means instead of around 30, it could even be close to 50 tomorrow afternoon, or at least 45 to 50. It is going to be nice this afternoon. We'll see
6: some sunshine. The afternoon temperature getting to about 48 degrees, then settling back to 25 in the suburbs, 32 in Midtown under the moonlight tonight. Tomorrow, mainly sunny, a little cooler than today, but without much wind, it's probably going to feel at least as comfortable high temperature 38
0: it's a nice looking day it'll be cooler than it was yesterday but it's still a nice looking day uh 38 maybe 40 and a similar kind of a day tomorrow and uh, neither day will offer
2: any unusual winds so pretty tolerable nice weather those high clouds are still with us uh but uh, we are seeing some of that sunshine getting through and it looks like we're gonna see plenty of it the rest of the day and very pleasant this afternoon above normal temperatures a high 42 and for tonight it'll be clear but not as chilly a low 34 in midtown 24 in the suburbs
5: now we're dealing with a uh, cloudy sky here this afternoon but temperatures are mild uh, topping out around 44 degrees the clouds associated with a storm which is actually centered all the way back in iowa uh, but it has a front reaching east into ohio and then it curls down to the gulf coast and there's a warm front uh, reaching eastward across virginia uh, this is all going to slowly moving east over- the next uh, 48 hours, and it's going to keep our skies gray. Uh, We will see some light rain coming in around midnight. It'll be off and on right through the day tomorrow and into tomorrow evening. Temperatures across much of the area staying above the freezing marks. We'll just have wet roads to deal with, but uh, there is a chance, at least, uh, across Connecticut uh, to White Plains and north of I-80 that for a time late tonight and first thing tomorrow morning, temperature's going to be right around that freezing mark, and you may find some untreated roads a little icy for the morning
6: rush hour. Well, it has simply been dull, dreary damp and dim since the day's dawn and it will probably persist through the day's dreary and dull dim damp demise at dinner. The good thing though is that most of the rain, well that's departed we just have a little drizzle to face. Temperature getting to 42 this afternoon going down to 36 tonight. Tomorrow some clearing, high 46. It'll be breezy this afternoon with a mixture of clouds and sunshine. High about 44. Partly cloudy tonight low 30 in the suburbs, 34 in Midtown. Tomorrow pretty nice day. Cloudy to partly sunny high 40. Well we expect to have a mixture of clouds and sunshine for the course of the day. The afternoon high temperature about 42 degrees. And then for tonight, partly cloudy. The temperature tonight dropping off to about 24 in
2: outlying areas, 30 in Midtown. Tomorrow, sunshine followed by cloudiness, high 38. Well, we're watching some light snow, which should cross through southern New Jersey during the rest of the morning. Otherwise, uh, we're looking for thickening clouds the rest of the morning. And uh, this afternoon, some snow or rain arriving in our area by evening. High today, 38. Now, there's a winter weather advisory uh, for late today through tonight and into tomorrow morning. North And west of the city. We'll see snow changing quickly to rain tonight in the city, nearby suburbs, and Long Island. But snow north and west of the city will change later on after about an inch of accumulation. We'll at the low tonight at 36. Tomorrow we just see rain and drizzle with areas of fog a high 42. We have a steel, a steel wool gl- gray
6: sky out there easy for me to say and also easy to get under an umbrella today. That's what you need. Raincoat all day, rainy drizzly, foggy. Temperatures in the upper 30s near 40. Then things change tonight as the storm consolidates to our south and a high pressure area builds into eastern Canada. Colder air will move southward and change the rain first to ice and then to snow from north to south across the area. And we could get a few inches of snow with very slippery conditions developing tomorrow as the temperature drops below freezing. Yes indeed and at least for uh, parts of the uh, listening area it is snowing
5: now. Uh, the uh, colder air is pressing in from the north. Many of the western and northern suburbs have gone over to all snow this hour and in the city I think it'll happen in this uh, next hour or two. Uh, we'll go from this mixture of rain and sleet to having some snowflakes and then all snowflakes. Uh, the temperatures heading south during the day will be down around 30 degrees by evening so watch uh, untreated surfaces are going to be getting. As we go through the afternoon, Uh, the snow will get to be heavy at times. Most of the accumulation is going to be coming during the night. Uh, By morning, we'll have four to eight inches, and actually, I kind of lean toward the top end of that range. Uh, This is going to be a pretty impressive storm, a low of 24 degrees. For tomorrow, strong gusty winds. The snow will diminish to flurries during the morning. We'll even get the sun back in the afternoon, but there's going to be blowing and drifting, notably outside the city.
4: The winter storm warning has ended, and we saw between four and eight inches of accumulation across the area. And uh, right now, what we're looking at is some leftover flurries, but that will be coming to an end by the noontime hour. The for the afternoon, some sunshine returns. There will be blow- blowing and drifting of snow, especially across the suburbs. High temperature 32. The wind, though, will make it feel like it's in the teens and single digits. Clear skies and cold for tonight. Diminishing wind, low 22 in midtown, 14 in some suburbs. Tomorrow, plenty of sunshine. High 36 degrees. With the sun climbing a
6: little higher in the sky, the temperatures are equalizing somewhat across the area. It's still in the single digits in northwestern New Jersey and in the Hudson Valley north of the city. We're expecting the afternoon air temperature to get to about 36. Clear to partly cloudy tonight. Low 18 in some suburbs. 26 in midtown. Tomorrow partly sunny. High 40. Sunny to partly cloudy today. High near 40. Partly cloudy tonight. Low 26 in most suburbs. 232 in midtown. Tomorrow sunshine mixed with clouds. High 42. We'll have cloudiness and some. Sun sunshine today. The afternoon temperature getting well up into the 30s to near 40 degrees, perhaps as high as 42. Parts of the mostly cloudy tonight the low 30. Then tomorrow will turn colder, so even though it only gets down to 30 tonight, it only gets up to 34 degrees during the day tomorrow. There could be a couple of snow flurries tomorrow morning. There's some flurries around this morning in some areas. It's coming down a little harder than most people think of as being flurries, but it's not going to amount to anything we don't believe. And this afternoon should turn sunny. The high temperature for the day, about 38. Clear, brisk, and cold tonight, low 14 in some suburbs,
0: 22 in midtown. Tomorrow, sunny, high 38. Sunny, and it's going to be a nice day today, James, and sunshine will get temperatures up pretty close to 40 this afternoon, at least the upper 30s. Tomorrow, We're also looking at temperatures to get above freezing, although we're also looking at cloud cover and some snow to be falling tomorrow.
4: Okay, we've got low pressure, which is tracking to the north of the city right now, and that's really not a good scenario for uh, major weather problems, and I'm sure we're all grateful for that. But there will be some snow showers around, especially across northern and western Jersey where they could see up to an inch. But otherwise, we're going to see just a bit about uh, everything around uh, clouds, sunshine, a few flurries, maybe a heavier burst of snow. Windy later this afternoon, the high 38. Clearing windy... and cold tonight, 28 in Midtown, 22 in the suburbs. Tomorrow, partly sunny and brisk, a high 38. Okay, it's going to be sunny today, but uh, there is a chilly wind blowing out there, averaging about 70, 17 miles an hour at this hour. So uh, bundle up if you're heading out. Uh, with the sunshine, uh, we're looking for a high here in Midtown of about 38. Clearing out and cold tonight, less wind, lows ranging from 18 in the suburbs to about 26 here in Midtown. Tomorrow, we're going to see some clouds showing up late in the day, but it will be mild in the afternoon, the high 42.
0: We look for temperatures this afternoon to get above 40, and uh, there'll be sunshine and some high clouds. Tonight, those clouds will thicken up, and tomorrow, a storm system will bring us some rain. There may be a time period early tomorrow morning or late tonight in areas well north and west of the city where that rain freezes and causes some ness at least for a while but then uh, during the day tomorrow temperatures get into the 40 degree range that rain may be having some uh, impact on those accidents that we heard about in shadow traffic because uh, north and west of interstate 287 the air temperature is close to and in some spots below freezing and the ground is frozen also and we are getting some freezing rain. But uh, close to the city, the adjacent suburbs, uh, in the five boroughs and on Long Island, it's just rain. Some of the rain will be heavy. And then late afternoon, it'll taper off uh, and end early this evening, and temperatures get into the 40s. Tomorrow, clouds can break for some sun, and maybe it gets to 50. Well, we are looking at clouds and some sunshine today, uh, James, and we're also looking at an area of rain, which is in eastern Pennsylvania now. It looks like it's uh, tending to shrink as it comes eastward, but it's certainly going to move into northwest New Jersey within the next hour. And I think there will be some rain in areas north and west of Interstate 287 today. There certainly could be a shower in parts and other parts of the metropolitan area, but a mild day getting up to around 50. Highs tomorrow in the 40s with a mix of clouds and sun. And most importantly, James, it's Groundhog Day Eve, just one day before the big holiday. Uh, and uh, the weather today looks like it's going to be just fine. Clouds, there's a slight chance for a sprinkle this morning, but there'll also be a few breaks of sunshine. and The temperature getting into the 40s. Tomorrow, there may be a couple of hours of either wet snow or rain as a cold front passes through. Now, Staten Island Chuck did not see his shadow, meaning that spring is uh, getting ready to spring. But of course, Punxsutawney Phil did see his shadow, indicating six more weeks of winter. We've also heard from uh, from uh, Buckeye Chuck out in Ohio, and he agrees with Staten Island Chuck, and they're against old Punxsutawney Phil. So uh, we've got battling groundhogs here, and I guess time will tell as it usually does. As far as weather is concerned, another mild day today, but then it turns colder tonight. There can be some rain and snow this afternoon and evening, maybe a few hours worth. At this point, we are not anticipating any snow accumulation, but it will be a whole heck of a lot of-
3: Thanks again to Alan Lick for appearing on this, the 647th episode, I want to say. I think that's right. 647th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One podcast network and is available wherever you get your podcasts, wherever and however. I don't know how you get them. Do you get them other ways other than like the Internet? There must be a whole subterranean existence where people get their podcasts without using Wi-Fi or data they just get them must be must be an interesting life i wonder anyway if you can't find an episode that you're looking for or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter which is uh, woefully out of date i gotta get on that thing it's just i haven't sorry i'll get i'm sure most of you don't even are you subscribed to the newsletter you can do it on my website uh, all of the stuff i just said really you can find out more about at uh, vishkana.com i tell you what you get a few more subscribers to the newsletter, I'll make one right away. I need like five. Five. That's a modest. Just five. <laughs> five new subscribers. I'll make a new newsletter. I don't know what will be in it, but I, I, I will rise to your challenge and I will write a new newsletter and it'll be great. I'm sure it will. Anyway, you can also like Creative Control on uh, social media, Facebook, I guess, if you like Facebook still. Or meta, it might be called meta by the time you hear this. Also, you can follow the show on Twitter at Vish Creative, or you can follow me directly on Twitter and on Instagram at Vishkana. Also, visit Patreon.com/slash Creative Control to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast. Six dollars or more a month grants you access to exclusive content and uh, stuff like uh, you know what we were talking to Alan about, like your his archives. That's what I dig into for the uh, exclusive content. Just whatever I can find. Sometimes it's like ten minutes with William Shatner. Sometimes it's like ninety minutes with Will Oldham. Whatever I can think of that might make sense from my back catalog that doesn't have a an online home anymore, I try to give it some new life and make it uh, Patreon content. So if you're interested, oh, also, and if you're interested in receiving a Creative Control T-shirt, I still have some of those. Just message me on Patreon, and I'll get you one while supplies last. Again. The address is patreon.com slash creative control. Thanks again to the fine Alberta record retailer Blackbird Music, which you can learn more about at blackbird.ca. They're in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, but I think you can contact them and figure out ways to order stuff wherever you are. So, blackbird.ca for more info. And also to Pizza Trocadero, the bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, which is still my home in my heart, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. Uh, which uh, my heart has probably not done so well because of the donuts, but it's delicious. So thank you, Granddad's Donuts, uh, for your in-kind support for this show. Thanks, as always, to Jim Guthrie. Uh, He lends me music for the show. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you for listening to this episode with Alan Licht. I do hope you'll check out his wonderful new uh, book, uh, uh, Common Tones, and uh, also consider subscribing to this podcast and asking your friends to do the same, spreading the word about the show, Uh, all of that helps. uh, So if you can, please do those things. And otherwise, thank you. I will talk to you soon. Sorry for the extra long intro. I got a little hyper. Bye for now.